whatever time of the day is there, it's my privilege to be with you. Before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much for your love and we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. We pray, Father, that you will be the one to open the word, that you will be the one to speak, you will be the one to touch the hearts of the people here and the people that will listen later. We pray that your Holy Spirit may fill us, change us, and help us to become more and more like you. May it be for your glory. May it have results for heaven. We pray in Jesus' merits and name and thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, as we start tonight, I want to mention a few things that seem to be general. Wherever I go, I cannot find perfect people, except politicians. They are always perfect. They never acknowledge any mistake. But I cannot find perfect people. The people that I talk with, as soon as we talk, they tell me that they want to follow God, but they struggle. And I don't understand why, because we go to church, we keep Sabbath, we listen to so many sermons. If you would count the sermons that you listen in a lifetime, let's say only in 20 years, I mean only the camp meeting sermons, not to mention every weekend, every Sabbath sermons, if you put them together, you would expect that we are already saints, we are already in heaven. After we listen a sermon and we are moved, why there is no change? Why next week we still struggle with the same issues? And, and it seems that the more we pray about something, the more we do it, the more we fail. For instance, I was born without patience. I am a very fast person. I have a fast temper, a very short fuse. I can do things that 10 people together cannot do. Basically, if we go in almost, not every area, but in many areas, for instance, one, one time, one of my elders, long ago in my first district, his combine broke. He had a big farm. The rain was coming. He was losing the whole corn. I mean, many fields. I mean, tons of corn. I don't know how big, but big farm. So I called the church. Let's everybody go and help this man. Help him harvest the corn. Well, everybody took one row. I took three rows. By the time they got to the middle, I was with three rows at the end, and back I met them in the middle. I move fast. I move faster. Ten people cannot keep up with me. But in the same time, I lose my temper fast. And so, the more I prayed for patience, it seems to me that the more I lose my patience. Did it ever happen to you when you struggle with something? You pray about it, and then you do it again. Why does it happen? Why does it happen? You make a decision, and when you make a decision, it seems that you fail. In fact, if you don't make any decision, you seem, you seem to have peace. But when you make a decision to pray, to study more, to be patient, to whatever, to stop doing something wrong, to get involved in evangelism, when you make a decision to follow Christ, or to serve Christ, or to do something better, to improve, that's when you feel the worst. That's when Satan attacks you more than before. And it is logic, because... Satan doesn't have a problem if we don't commit to Jesus. But when we commit to pray more or to do this or that, Satan hates it. And then he attacks us to get us discouraged so we give up. So what should we do? I'm going to give you an example. I like my shoes shiny. And I would shine them properly. But then 
I was in Romania and there was, uh, a, people didn't have cars and, and people would go to work or to school with a bus. And there were so many people, I could show you pictures on the bus, that the bus driver could not close the doors. Sometimes there were people hanging from a bar outside the bus, outside the door, like, like, like a cluster of people. And the bus was like inclined a little in that side. So many people inside, they were like sardines in a can. Basically, nobody could move. And so I was shining my shoes. I get in the bus and everybody steps on my shoes. And then I get stomach pain and I shine them again and then somebody steps again. And I say, watch it. And I lose my temper. And my wife would say, calm down, that it's only shoes. And I got to the point that I would hide my feet under somebody's chair and hold myself so I don't fall from a bar so nobody can step on my shoes. And they still would step on my shoes. And the more I prayed, that, that doesn't bother me, the more angry I got with people stepping on my feet. Until one day when my wife says, you know, Satan is attacking you there because you are sensitive there. And so what I did, I said, okay, I'm going to let them walk all over my shoes. I put my foot, I said, okay, walk. And they did. But then after a while, either I didn't care anymore, I don't know, or they stopped walking because nobody, when I didn't care, nobody stepped on my shoes anymore. Can it be, you know, that when we make a decision, Satan hates that and he attacks us right there? So how do you get victory? How do you grow? The Bible says... Don't listen to people that pretend that they are perfect, like politicians. Like The Bible clearly says in the book of Romans that we all, how many? All fall short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? All have sinned. So even if you, I don't care if you are a pastor or a conference president or a union president or whatever position you have, we all are sinners. And we all desire victory. And we all struggle with victory. And we may be able to change our external behavior. But we cannot change our heart. The Bible says, can a leopard change his spots? No, neither you can change your heart. Only God can take our heart and give us a new heart. So how does it happen? What is the process? And so I'm going to give you uh, another example. We, we know that we have this struggle between the two natures. The nature, the, the image of God that God put in us at creation and the human nature that we got after sin. And the two natures fight each other. And Paul says, I don't do what I want. I do what I hate. Who is going to save me from, from this body? And so if Paul the apostle had this struggle, you and me, also have this struggle. And if we may pretend we go to church on Sabbath, eh, good morning, good morning, happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath, how are you doing? Great, how are you doing? Great. That's sometimes just a mask. Many times we are not great inside. And so how do you deal with that? You see, I'm going to give you an example I promised before. Have you ever had a day when when one goes wrong, the second one goes wrong, the third one, when it rains, it pours, it, everything seems to go wrong. For instance, I was trying to, I was in hurry to go to a place, I had an appointment, a meeting, and I'm trying to hurry to put all my stuff in the laptop, in, in the briefcase, to put my laptop, my charger, my everything. And as I bend down to do it, I drop the laptop from my hand. I'm trying to reach the laptop, and I stumble over the cat. The cat runs and scratches me, and then I step sideways so I don't hit the cat. And my wife was ironing my shirt. And when I get up, I hit with my head the ironing table. 
I get frustrated in my stomach, I get down again. Finally, I get dressed, put everything in, 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 in the briefcase. I go outside to the car, and before getting to the car, I step in something that my dog did there, by the car. I was like, go, oh, come on! And then, can you preach? Do you know what I am talking about those days? That, that... And then we say, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I want to change. You know that I don't have the power. And sometimes I, I hold it, but inside is, there is a lot of pressure. Please, Lord, change my heart. How does it happen? How do we experience real, lasting change and growth? First, and we will talk about the second part, the salvation, assurance, assurance of salvation in a different message. But before we get there, first, I want to clarify that there are so many people that have died in history that will be saved and they are not yet perfect. For instance, let's pick the worst one, the thief on the cross. Jesus promised him, I promise you today, I give you this promise now, that you will be with me in heaven. But that guy died before he had the chance to do anything good to prove that he changed. He did a lot of bad stuff and then he will be in heaven. Is that fair compared to Abraham who served all his life, compared to Isaiah, compared to Paul the Apostle who served all their life. That guy did nothing good and yet they both, Abraham and the thief on the cross. Paul and Rahab, they will be in heaven. Is that fair? The one who worked all day and the one who comes in the 11th hour, they both go to heaven? Salvation is not based on what you did or how much you did. None of our good acts deserve heaven. Our good acts, in fact, in the Bible, are compared to filthy rugs. Not our bad. Our righteousness not our sinfulness. Our righteousness, says the Bible verse, is like, like, like dirty rugs. Because our righteousness may seem righteous compared to people. But when you compare your, your righteousness with God's righteousness, it is compared to his divine, perfect righteousness. It is filthy. And so, none of our good acts deserve heaven. We are saved by grace through faith. It is the grace of God that saves us. It's not what we do. Therefore, the thief on the cross could have been saved. Therefore, let's clarify before we start. If you are in the beginning of your growth process, right here like the thief, or if you are a little later like Mary, or if you are a little later, you grew a little more, you are more spiritual, but not yet perfect. Maybe like you or like me. Or if you are here like Paul the Apostle. Doesn't matter where you are. If you are in Christ. As long as you are in Christ, you are saved. But you can be perfect. Nobody is perfect, but let's say, let's say perfect. If you separate from Christ, your perfection doesn't save you. You are lost. Because only Christ in you is the hope of glory. The Bible says that he who has Christ, and it's a present continued tense, that means continually to have Christ. He who has Christ has life. He who doesn't have Christ doesn't have life. Therefore, as soon as you separate from Christ, you are lost. As soon as you reconnect with Christ, not because of you, but because of his presence, you are saved. Christ in you. Another Bible verse says, he who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. But the Greek there, it's a present continued tense that is translated, he who keeps on calling. He who keeps on calling the name, continually inviting God, please come into my life. Lord, come into my heart. Lord, he who keeps inviting the name, the presence of the Lord continually shall be saved. And so let's start. Paul says that he is, Paul the apostle, 
He has been persecuted for God. He has been starting churches. He wrote more letters than anybody in the Bible. He was taken in a vision in heaven. He, Paul the Apostle says that he is the chief of sinners. Why would he say that? Isaiah says, woe to me because I am a sinner. Why would he say that? All of them, when they go in God's presence, they all collapse. Daniel, Isaiah, Zedekiah, John the Revelator, they all in God's presence collapse. We cannot even stand in God's presence. We are so sinful. And so, uh, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, he says to the saints from Corinthians, he calls them saints, and later in the same chapter, he calls them sinners. Are they saints or sinners? And so how do you explain that? I, uh, I was hopeless. When I was young, I did so many pranks. I never did drugs. I never did, uh, not bad stuff, small stuff. But I did so many that people were afraid of me. I had so many ideas. I never missed. I had a thousand ideas per second. I never missed ideas. Basically, in every situation, I had an idea or more. For instance, I was in the church. I was at the balcony with the choir. I saw people sleeping during the sermon. I got an idea. I got a, a, a straw, a thicker one, you know, and uh, not that for the juice, but that for a, for a shake, you know. A straw, rice, and then from the balcony, people that were sleeping, I was shooting them in the head during church, you know. That was fun. That was like being saved. I was so happy. Another example. We were camping. My uncle, who was a mechanic, told me that if you put something in the muffler so the exhaust of the car would not work, the engine gets choked to the point that the engine dies. We ate corn, we were camping the youth, and I got an idea. I had the cup from the corn, and I put it in the muffler of the pastor's car. Sunday night, when we finished camping, we got in the car, so everybody. The pastor started the car, he drove like 20 meters, and the car died. And then he tried, he tried and tried and tried, and everybody said, hey, you killed the battery, it doesn't work. So they all, smart people, got around the car, they lifted the, 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 the hood, and they all looked to the engine, but they could not find the problem. And I said to the pastor, I said, have you prayed about it? He said, oh no, Pavel, I didn't think. I said, you are a pastor, you should think. And so they got around the car, they prayed that the car would start. During the prayer, I got behind the car and I pulled the cup, the corn, you know. And then he tried, and the car started. I said, miracle, you know. And, but one of the young people didn't close his eyes. And he saw me, and he told the pastor. And the pastor got angry, and he called my father. And my mother, as usual, started to cry, because they would get about 10 phone calls a day because of my pranks. And my father would say, honey, don't worry. I was the same. But my father prayed for me, and we are praying for him. And can you imagine if we keep praying because of God's grace, not because of him? He will not only be saved, but God is going to turn him around. And if God can use all these ideas for good, can you imagine how much good God can do through him? And so my father was gracious to me. My mother was desperate. She got gray hair quick because of me. But anyway, and so how do you change? My mother would say to my father, he is never going to change. And my father said, yeah, 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 God is going to change. We cannot change him. We cannot fight this guy. But, but he has too, much, too many ideas, too much energy, but God is going to change him. How do people change? How do people who tell me that I am crazy, that I am hopeless, how do people change? Sometimes people try and try and then they either get depressed and discouraged and they give up or they put a face and they smile and they pretend fake that everything is good while inside 
is not good. How do people change? I'm going to go through the process. In the Bible, it says very clearly in John chapter 15, verse 4, and this is the foundation of the Christian life. I want you to understand. It doesn't matter how beautiful the house may be. If you don't have a foundation or you have a bad, weak foundation or a crooked foundation, the house will collapse. Your whole Christian life, all you do is based on this foundation. Make sure that you have it. This Bible verse is going to put the foundation for this message. John 15 verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, neither can you unless you abide in me. It's, it's logical. You cut off a branch, the branch is going to die. You turn off the power, the light bulb is going to go off. You disconnect from Christ. You will be spiritually dead. You may go to church, you may pretend, you may be in the books of the church, but you are powerless. The reason we don't have power in the church, the reason we don't have growth, the reason we don't have victory, is because we are disconnected. And in order to have a spiritual life, you need to be continually fully connected. That's the reason it says pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean, as we, some of us understand prayer, as asking. It doesn't mean keep asking without ceasing. In fact, the translation is be connected continually. Pray without ceasing. It could be translated in many ways. But the meaning is not that you stay on your knees 24-7 and you don't go to work and you don't, or you drive and you keep your eyes closed. And you, the meaning is that you are connected. That's the reason he says that Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. That means that you are continually connected. That's what Jesus says. That's what Abraham did. That's what Moses did. That's what Joseph did. That's what Daniel did. And all the people of faith, including in the New Testament, they were continually connected. When you learn to be more and more and more connected, the more connected you are with Christ, the more victories, the more power, the more growth, the more results, the more fruits, the more understanding, the more profound spiritual life you'll have. Fully, continually connected. That's the message. Fully connected. Now, listen, I want to, I have a bunch of paragraphs and Bible verses, but you don't have time for all of them. I will just pick a few. I want to explain a little. Paul says, if anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. If they are ministers of Christ, I am minister. If they are in la uh, laboring for Christ, I did that more. If they are beaten, I was beaten and in stripes and, and in prison and in almost death. Five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods and so on and so forth. One time I was stoned. I, I preached for Christ. I worked for Christ. I planted church. I was persecuted for I was even in the, in the sea. And, and, and uh, I sleepless and without food. And I was in vision. I was, he says, I am better than you. Yet, I cannot brag with any of this. Only with Christ. Yet, I didn't get there and I am not perfect. In fact, I am the chief of sinners. Yet, I cannot do anything. In fact, I don't do what I want. I do what I hate. 
So if you somehow get the impression that you can change, you are on the wrong path. If you think that you can save yourself, you are on the wrong path. And he says in, in Romans chapter 7, I don't do what I want. I do what I hate. So how do you get close to Christ while you are still not perfect and then keep growing? I hear people saying, I hear people saying, I cannot really get baptized because I am not perfect yet. I cannot go to church because I sinned. I cannot pray because I sinned. That's like saying, I cannot go to the doctor because I am sick. Let's, let's wait until I get well and then I go to the doctor. That's nonsense. You don't go to Christ when you are good. Sinners need Jesus as sick need the doctor. You go, you go to the doctor and you have nothing urgent. It's just a regular check. You stay in line. You wait for an appointment two months and then you stay in line one hour. But if you come from an accident in an emergency, you go to ER. The doctor doesn't say, man, he is worse. He needs to wait six months. You go straight in. You don't stay in any line. The same with Christ. That doesn't mean that we should sin. But that it means that regardless where you are, you can go straight in. Because of your sinfulness and desperate need, Christ is more willing than anything to receive you because he loves you, because you are his child. And so there is no reason for people to say, I cannot go to, to God or to church because I am a sinner. That's the very reason you should go to Christ. And so how do you start? We need to start with point number one. Very important. Three points. Very important. Confess, believe, remain. Or you can say repent, believe, remain. Let me explain. Number one. Honest confession. It's absolutely necessary, vital for forgiveness, spiritual growth, victory, peace, salvation, results, fruits, even worship. You cannot genuinely worship without honest confession. The Bible is very clear. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess, and the word if, it's a conditional, it's a covenant, it's a deal. You have your part, God has his part. If you do your part, God is going to do his part. Your part is to confess. God's part is to forgive and to cleanse, not only to forgive. If you do your part, God promised that he will do his part. Sometimes people confess, but they don't feel that they are forgiven. I did confess, but I have to do it again. And they pray for forgiveness for one sin, ten times, or ten years. I knew somebody that after 70 years, she was praying for the same sin to be forgiven. She didn't have a sin problem. She had a faith problem, you know. And because the Bible doesn't say you have to confess 20 times. The Bible says, if you confess, God forgives. Do you think you are better than God? If you do your part, why do you think God is not going to do his part? If God promised, God cannot lie. If you do your part, God is going to do his part. In the moment where you honestly confess with broken heart, you say, Lord, I'm really sorry. In that instant, God forgives. Not because you deserve it, but because Jesus' blood is sufficient. His blood is sufficient to forgive all sins, regardless how many, regardless how big. It says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world, the whole history, all the sins. doesn't matter the size of the sin. If your sin is as big as Mount Everest, Jesus' blood is bigger than the universe. From the universe, you don't see Mount Everest. In fact, you don't see the earth. And so, people say, but my sin is big. doesn't matter. Stop looking to your sin. Start looking to the cross. 
Confession is absolutely vital. If you confess, God forgives and cleanses you. Not only that he forgives you, but he cleanses you. He gives you not only that you are forgiven, but when you are cleansed, you are white. There is no stain. There is no any type of mark, any type of thing that would show that you had the sin there. Basically, he doesn't only forgive you. When he cleanses you, he throws the sins at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the deepest point of the ocean, and then he puts there a no fishing sign above that nobody can go there and see it or catch it anymore. When you confess, he forgives and he erases. It's gone. You didn't do it. That's the reason Jesus says to Mary, when they drag her to Jesus, hoping that they will kill her, and she was so sinful and she expected to be killed, that was the best thing that they did for her without even knowing. Because when you are a sinner and you go to Jesus, it's not death. Next thing is forgiveness. When she was dragged to Jesus and, and, and she is expecting the stones to come, to come, and Jesus said, what are you, after he writes on the sand, their sins, he says, what are your condemners? And she looks around and they are not here. And Jesus says, nobody condemns you. But Jesus could have said, hey, you deserve it. You did sin. You deserve to be punished. But Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. And in a different Bible, Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn, but to save. I came to save the world. A different Bible verse that we all know. For so much, God so much, so much loved the world that he gave his son that anybody, whosoever, anybody, regardless how many, regardless how big sins, regardless where you are, could be saved. And so back to our subject. Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. And, there, and then there is a conjunction in translation that says, therefore, go and see no more. And that word, therefore, could be translated, therefore, you can go and see no more. And it means that because I do not condemn you. And, and, and the great controversy explains that, actually. It says there in, in, in the inspired paragraph, and I put it in my words, that if we accept by faith the no condemnation gift, the forgiveness, in that moment, we are forgiven, we are cleansed, and then she says, we have a new start. Basically, we are cleansed and we start all over like we never did, like we were just born today, like a newborn baby. No sin, no past, like a sponge, clean, spotless. We have a new start. In that moment, you start all over again. It's like, oh, you never, Satan comes, but, 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 but he sinned. God, he sinned. And Jesus says, no, he's perfect. No, he sinned. No, he's perfect. Look there. He's absolutely spotless. In that moment, you are not perfect. You are still a sinner. You are still a stinker. But God takes your sinful cover, your, 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 your clothing, clothing, and puts it on Jesus. And takes Jesus' cover that is perfect, is white, clean, spotless, divine, and puts it on you. And you are covered with his righteousness. And you are white as snow. Not because you deserve it, but because of his righteousness. In that moment, Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. Therefore, you have a new start. You start from zero, like never, you never did it. And then the spirit of prophecy says, if we accept that grace, that forgiveness, that no condemnation gift by faith, in that moment, listen carefully, if we accept it by faith, not by feelings, not by understanding, not by deserving, but by faith. If we accept it by faith, faith based in God's love, faith based in his sacrifice, faith based in his promise 
God cannot lie. If we accept it by faith, in that instant, she says, we are cleansed. Not only forgiven, but cleansed, white. And she says, we have a new start. Listen carefully. She says, therefore, we can start all over again. That's the reason Jesus says, go and see no more. Therefore, you can go and see no more. Therefore, if you don't believe that you are forgiven, if you don't confess, or you confess but you don't believe, you are still in sin. Because you are in sin, you keep sinning. But if you believe, you have a new start. You start from zero. You have a new start. You can start all over again. And so, saying that, in fact, the Spirit of Prophecy says we should rejoice in forgiveness. Jump up and down and whistle and scream and say, hey, like, this is the greatest gift ever. Imagine if somebody gave you uh, the gift of life when you are dying. You have cancer and instantly it does something and you are, if somebody gave you $10 million, wouldn't you jump up and down and, and scream and dance a holy dance and, and rejoice? And so, why don't we rejoice when we are forgiven? Why, why do we take it for granted and yeah, I'm forgiven? We should, we should sing and jump and rejoice and say, thank you, Jesus. I am forgiven. I am clean. I am righteous in this moment. And so, conditionally, if we confess, God promised that you will forgive. And the spirit of prophecy says, don't wait to feel it. Take God's word. God's forgiveness and God's love and God's word, God's promise, is not based on your feelings and chemistry and moods and emotions. God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, regardless how you feel. God loves you when you feel it, and God loves you when you don't feel it. God forgives you when you feel it, and God forgives you when you don't feel it. Forgiveness is not electricity. Oh, I felt I'm forgiven. You don't feel forgiveness, you don't smell forgiveness, you don't see forgiveness, you don't touch forgiveness, you don't understand forgiveness, you don't pay for forgiveness. It is by faith. Take it, because God promised. Don't look to deserve it. Don't look to understand it. It's not science. It's God's word. Take his word for it. He promised God cannot lie. God will be responsible for that in front of the universe because of his promise. So you better rejoice in it. And so, how does it start? This whole process of growth starts with confession. If we confess. Confession is... So, growth is conditional. If we confess, God forgives and cleanses, gives us a new, clean, like snow, start. But then, listen carefully. Confession cannot be generic. Oh Lord, forgive my, forgive my sins. Or thankfulness, generic. Oh Lord, thank you for everything. Confession has to be specific. You don't say forgive my sins. You name it. Lord, I criticize my brother. Lord, I lost my temper. Lord, I... Whatever you did, you need to name it. Only when you confess specific, you name the sin, you own who you are. Only then you get forgiveness. Like Alcoholic Anonymous, they don't say, oh, I am bad. They say, I am an alcoholic and I've been sober for two years or five or ten or whatever. You need to name the sin. Like Jacob, he and Esau, his brother, had a controversy with a birthright. He deceived his father. We know the story very well. He put lambskins and he changed his voice and he goes to the blind father. The father says, who are you, son? He says, I am Esau. You know, Esau was a tenor and Jacob was a bass. I'm saying, I don't know. I have no clue what 
type of voice they had. But he changed his voice. I am Isa! As many people pretend to be who they are not and they live a fake double life and they are holy in the church and they develop horns at home, you know. And so, uh, I am Isa! And the father blessed him. He deceived his father to get a blessing. Do you think he got a blessing? Oh, he may have gotten the words. But the Bible says that whatever God blesses is blessed for eternity, is blessed forever. If he got the blessing, why would he seek the blessing later in the night when he was fighting Jesus and he said, I'm not going to let you go before you bless me. If he got the blessing, he would have been blessed forever. It means that he never got the blessing. As people go to church and they seek a blessing and they never get a blessing. Because they don't understand this experience of confession. You'll never get a blessing before you understand that you need to own who you are. When you pretend that you are not what you are, you don't get a blessing. You just get justification in front of your bodies and the fight with your spouse. But nothing more than that. People who don't confess, who don't own who they are, they always blame others for their own problems. It's not my fault, she said. It's not my fault, the pastor did. It's not my fault, the church is... They are never guilty. They are like politicians. There is no change. There is no growth. There is no salvation without specific confession. You need to own your sin. You need to say, it's me, O Lord. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. As the song. You cannot say, the church doesn't pray. When the church starts praying, I'm gonna... God is making you responsible for your sin. Stop blaming others for your sins and your problems. People judge others because they have a problem. If you had a connection with Christ, you would not judge others, you would pray for others. The Bible says, who are you? Look to the, to the problem in your eye. The Bible says, who are you to judge? And the spirit of prophecy says, when we judge, we take the characteristics of God, we make ourselves gods. God is the judge, not you. You don't understand the circumstances. You don't know the people's motivation and history. If you knew, probably you would be more tolerant. We have a tendency to tolerate ourselves and our families and judge the others. God is the judge. And so, back to our subject. Back to our subject. Confession has to be specific. Specific. Basically, you say, Lord, when you, when you praise the God, you don't say thank you for the blessing. You say, Lord, I was losing the plane. I prayed and the plane was late and you helped me catch the plane. Thank you. You are specific. When you pray for the church, oh, Lord, bless my church. That's when you don't care. When you care for the church, you don't pray for the church. You pray for each name. You take every mother, every father, every child. You pray for every elder, for every deacon, for every Sabbath school teacher, for every greeter. When you care for the church, you start praying for them. And the more you invest and sacrifice and commit to that prayer, you cannot pray for whole church because it's going to take you hours, but you pray for 10 today, for 10 tomorrow. When you start to do that, then God can work. And then the more you invest in them, the more you love them, and the more God can inspire you what to do for them and how to reach them. And the more God can use those prayers and answer them. Prayer has to be specific. Confession has to be specific. When we pray generic, it's because we want to do our duty routine and put our conscience to sleep, but we don't mean it. When you mean it, you invest in it. And so, confession has to be specific, number one. Number two, when we blame others or we are not specific, we have a tendency to hide or excuse the sin. When you hide it or excuse it, you are going to repeat it. Because if you have an excuse, it means that you can do it again when you have the same reasons. You cannot hide it. You cannot excuse it. You just have to confess it. You cannot even worship. Worship is not only in Sabbath. Worship is coming in God's presence. 
if we come in God's presence only on Sabbath, that's a problem. In fact, some people go to church on Sabbath and they still don't worship because they never experience God's presence. They just go through the routine and go home and they never experience a blessing or growth. Worship is every day. When you pray, if you don't come in God's presence, you just do routine. It doesn't help you. When you study the world and you don't realize that you talk to God, that God talks to you, you are not in his presence. Stop studying. It's not going to help you. You don't remember what you studied. Worship is when you realize that you come in God's presence. When you come in God's presence, you cannot come in God's presence standing straight with pretensions and expectations. Hey, I am the boss. When you come in God's presence, you collapse. And you say like every one of the Bible people, Woe to me, I'm going to die because I've seen the Lord. When you come in God's presence, you collapse because you realize compared to God that you are a sinner like everyone in the Bible. Therefore, you cannot even worship before you don't collapse in confession, acknowledging who you really are. Jacob, back to Jacob. He deceived his father. He deceived his brother. He deceived his father-in-law, putting things, branches in the water so the sheep would be born the colors he wants. He would always find a solution to solve his problems. He did pray probably as we do, Lord, solve my problem. But he never had the patience to wait upon the Lord. And the Bible says those who wait upon the Lord renew their strength. He never had the patience. He asked God and then he did something to solve his problems. And then many years later, he's about 60 when he goes back home. He still never experienced a blessing, never had peace with people or God. He was a good Adventist. He kept Sabbath, he returned tithe, yet didn't experience honest confession, growth, victory, because they all depend on this first step. When he goes back home, his brother comes with soldiers to kill him. That night, somebody, a thief, attacks him, or that's what he thought. And he starts fighting the thief. And they fight the whole night. And he's disparate. Oh man, now this is what I miss. My brother is attacking me. Now I was attacked. Somebody broke into my tent and stealing and maybe to kill me. And he didn't realize that he was actually fighting God. And it seems to me that all his life, when he was fighting his father, his brother, his father-in-law, he was fighting God. Because nothing happens by chance, but all things work together for the benefit of those who love the Lord. If God allowed it, it means that you need it. If God allowed it, it means that there are characteristics that you need to develop. Your character needs to grow. You need to learn to trust the Lord, or you need to learn to be patient, or you need to learn to be humble, or you need to learn to love, or you need to learn to give up, or you need something that you need to learn in order to be saved. And God allowed those things to teach him necessary lessons for his salvation. And he always blamed somebody else and found solutions to solve his problems. And he was always thinking that he fights his father, his brother, his father-in-law. But without realizing, he was fighting God that was trying to teach him and grow him and save him. And so, he's now fighting a stranger without realizing that he's fighting God. Towards the morning, the stranger says, let me go. He says, no. And the stranger just touched him on the hip. And his hip popped out of socket. He said, whoa, miracle. And he realized that he is actually not fighting a thief, but he is fighting God. And from fighting the stranger, he grabs the stranger, embraces, and says, I'm not going to let you go before you bless me. But God is old, and he lost his hearing. He needs hearing aids, because God doesn't hear what he says. He says, I'm not going to let you go before you bless me. And God doesn't say, yes or no, I'm going to bless you, or no, I'm not going to bless you. God says, tell me your name. What is the connection between name and blessing? There is no connection. 
It's like I am asking you for water, and you say, take the bus and go to stations. There is no connection. Or he thinks so. That's where he dropped the ball many years ago. When his father asked him, what is your name? And he said, I am Isa. Now he has to pick the ball where he dropped it. God says, what is your name? There is no forgiveness, God says. There is no blessing. You never experience blessing. There is no growth. There is no victory. There is no salvation. Before you own who you are. Salvation starts with confession. He realized when God said, what is your name? He said, I am Isa, pretending to be somebody else. He says, I am Jacob. The translation means the deceiver. I am the deceiver, Lord. I am always deceiving and being deceived. Fighting and being fought against. I'm, 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 I'm an alcoholic. I'm an angry person. When he owns his problem, not blaming his brother, his father-in-law, his wife, his pastor, not blaming somebody, but he says, it's me, O oh Lord. When he acknowledges, owns, confesses, honest confession, humble, honest confession is vital, absolutely necessary for forgiveness, victory, blessing, growth, uh, influence to transform others, salvation, and all of the above. That's where it starts. And there is no way to build above before you put this step. When he finally confesses, God not only that forgives him, but blesses him. And then God says, all nations will be blessed in you. He becomes a blessing. Not only blessed, but becomes a blessing. Moreover, God changes his name. And in Israel culture, changing name means adoption. God adopts him as a son of God. When you are adopted in Israel, if you are a biological child, you can be disowned. But if you are adopted by law, you cannot be disowned. So God says, the inheritance, it's your son. More than that, in that night, God shows in a dream to his brother and says, don't touch him. When you confess, you don't even have to fight your enemies. God goes before you and he fights for you. When you go to the field, to the war field, the victory is already won. Before you get there, you just pick up the spoil. When you confess, you don't have to fight. You fight when you don't confess. Your life, your life is all a fight. When you confess, God fights for you. You don't have to defend yourself. God defends you. And so, confession is absolutely necessary for the Christian growth. Grow. Not only salvation, not only forgiveness, but for every step that follows. I'm going to give you a story and we finish here. And next time we continue step number two. I'm going to give you a story. I'm going to give you a story. I was in my very first district. And uh, there was a guy that worked for the police. He was a traitor. He was a Judas. And he was a, the head elder for, who knows, 40 years or more. Uh, he was forever elder. And uh, they tried to take him down to elect somebody else. But every time they tried, the police came and locked the church. Because in the communist regime, they had the power. They would come and close the church. And they would say, if you want to have a church, you put him back. And they had no choice. They would put him back. Or they, they thought so because they didn't pray a lot about it. They, just, they were just afraid of police. And in my Bible, every place you meet God, you, are, you have no fear. You are afraid. You, you fear God, but you don't fear people. If God is with you, 
If God is really with you, who can be against you? Come on. God told them at the Red Sea, don't scream, I am with you. These Egyptians, you're not going to see them tomorrow. And then God split the sea. Imagine God splitting. I mean, if you're there walking through the sea, come on. At Jericho, he tells Joshua, don't be afraid, be courageous. I am with you. And God takes down the walls of Jericho. God told Jehoshaphat, don't be afraid, I am with you. And he puts the choir in front of the army and God kills them before they even fight. To Gideon, 300 people against a great crowd. Don't be afraid. And Gideon's soldiers, they didn't even have a sword. They had a light and a trumpet. Come on, you go to war with the light and the trumpet? That's suicide mission, come on. And so, when God is with you, 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 don't, you don't have fear. God's presence would cast away any type of fear. If you are afraid, that means that you have a theory of God, but not the presence of God. And so, back to the story. They were afraid of him. And so he was elder forever. And he would, whatever happened in the church, he would go to the police next Monday, and he would tell the police, they were afraid to bring Bibles, they were afraid because they would be arrested. And many people were arrested, and many people lost jobs, and many pastors were, uh, most of them moved. As soon as they would not listen to him, or do what he said, they would be moved, and a few of them fired. And, and, and sometimes he would take the money of the church, the tithe, and he would spend it himself with his family and everybody was afraid of him. I was moved in that district. I was young and, and uh, it was right after the fall of communism, but still the police had power and he still had power. And when I got there, he came to me and he said, he was, he was big, I mean big, really big. And red is like, like he had high blood pressure to the point that you would think that he would explode, you know, red. And he came to me and said, young man, this is the deal. You listen to me, you'll have a good life. And that actually happened to me twice in two different districts, with a man and with a woman. Anyway, the woman was not big. She was very slim and very tall, but this guy was short and big. And he says to me, you listen to me, you'll have a good life. You don't listen to me, I move you. Or if you really start fighting against me, I fire you. And if you really start against me, even worse, I put you in prison. He says, I have the power to give you life or to give you freedom or to put you in, I, I, I can terminate you. When he said, I can terminate you, I said, are you Schwarzenegger? Are you the terminator? You know? I said, I'm not afraid of you. I said, when, when, I, when I was in school, in the day when they taught fear, I missed classes. I, I didn't go to school that day, so I don't know fear. Leave me alone. He said, what? Are you kidding? I said, not kidding. He said, this guy is crazy. Well, everybody said you are, that I am crazy. And you know, if you are a little crazy, you can get away with stuff. It's good to be a little crazy. Anyway, and so I was young. I was not very wise. And I started to fight him. I said, no, nah, I'm not afraid of you. And so he started to take the money. I talked to the treasurer. I said, listen, right after church, when you count the money, take them home. Don't leave them in the church. She did. When he goes Sunday to pick up the money, the money is not there. Monday morning when the bank opened, she deposited the money. He came to me. Oh, you go against me. I'll make your life miserable. I said, well, it is already because I'm here in this district with you. I don't, I don't know how you can make it more miserable than that, you know. He, he got even more angry. And, and then he started to talk to them against me, but they, they were all small in, in front of him. Like, like I, 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 I'm not going to say it, but anyway. And so... Eventually, I talked to him, I said, why are you afraid of him? And they said, well, he can close the church. I said, then if, if God allows it, then the church should be closed. But if you have a church without God's presence, why do you have a church? It should be closed. And if you have God's presence, why do you have fear? They said, the police is going to come, arrest us, close the church. I said, but did you pray about it? Oh, we did. How long? We don't know. 
That's because you didn't pray. Yes, we did. No, you didn't. It's like if you fast two minutes, you don't know. But if you fast two days, trust me, you do know. If you pray two seconds, you don't know. But if you pray two days, you do know. Have you ever prayed the whole night? No. Have you ever prayed two hours about it? No. How long do you pray? Well, we mention it. There's no prayer. If your son goes into the emergency room in the ER or uh, intensive care after an accident and the doctor says he has two more hours to live, do you pray two seconds? Oh, Lord, be with my son. Amen. Or you labor in prayer. Do you really want an answer? Pray seriously about this situation, that God would solve this problem. And I said, I'm going to challenge you to pray with me. And I started a prayer group with about five of them, and then about ten of them, and then they started to increase. And we were praying together, not against him, but that God would solve the problem. And then some of them started to pray against him, and I told them, I said, you are not a Christian. Jesus died for him, and by the way, God saved the thief on the cross. God loves this guy. God doesn't agree with him, but God loves this guy and God wants to save him because he is a son of God. He may be lost, he may be, his mind may be somehow gone, but God loves him. As you love your child, even if your child did some stupid stuff, God loves him. So we got to pray for him. They said, Pastor, the, the, the pastor before told us that we need to fight against him. We need to unite. And the church was divided into groups, fighting each other. I said, well, when we fight each other, regardless who wins, Satan wins. Satan brings division. Christ prayed that we would be one in John 17. We need to be one. I don't have time to fight him. I'm not going to spend my energy fighting him. I'm going to spend my energy doing evangelism. Let's pray for him. And let's pray that this church would be open and that God would decide who is the elder and that we will be a light in the community and save the lost. That's our job, not to fight this guy or anybody else, as a matter of fact. And so we started to pray for him instead of praying against him. And we started to pray for the church and for the city. And then the more we prayed together, the more courage they got. And then they said, what should we do at the election? I said, don't ask me. It's not politics. Do whatever God says. And what if the police comes? Well, if they come and close the church, we pray that God would open it. And God can open it. And if God wants to open it, great. If not, then we need to have a closed church. Maybe then we repent. Election came. We had nominating committee and they didn't elect him after a life being an elder, like 40 years. I don't remember how long. <coughs> Excuse me. They didn't elect him. And when they read the list and they elected a, a different man who was a man of faith, a man of God. When they read the list and they elected somebody else, this guy stood up. He was in the front left side, second row. He stood up. He put his finger towards me. I said, young man. I am going to terminate you. And in that instant, he had a heart attack and he dropped in the church. They took him to hospital. The doctor said he had a massive heart attack. They don't have the equipment or the knowledge to fix it. They sent him home. He lived a few more days and he died. But that's not the end of the story. My wife said to me, go and visit him. I said, man, he is hopeless. My wife said, no, nobody is hopeless. You don't decide who is saved and who is not. God decides. You told them to pray for him. You prayed for him. Nothing happens by chance. Maybe this guy will never listen unless he goes through some challenges. And God allows anything. Because it's better to lose your leg or your eye or your life. This life is short. It goes so fast. Than to lose salvation. We talk about eternity versus 70 years or whatever. Eternity. And so, my wife said, go to him. He didn't die yet. Maybe God allowed it because there is hope for him. Like the thief on the cross. So I went to visit him. As soon as I knocked in the door and his wife opened the door, 
He from the bed said, you came to laugh on me, to have revenge. You came to rejoice that I went against him and now I am, I am dying. And I said, no, actually I came to visit you and to pray for you. And he said, I don't need you to pray for me. I said, I will be glad to pray for you. He said, no, no prayer can help me. I said, why do you say that? And he said, I did so much evil in my life against the church and the pastors and the members that the Holy Spirit left me. There is no hope. I am lost. Go away. Don't pray for me. I said, listen, have you ever seen the Holy Spirit? No. Do you, can you see the Holy Spirit? No. How do you know that he left? Maybe he's in the room. Do you keep the Holy Spirit in a box and you found the door open? And How, how do you know? He says, I don't know. Then how do you know? But I sinned. There are people that sinned a lot more than you. Nebuchadnezzar, think about it. Thief on the cross, Rahab, the woman at the well, with the whole city. I mean, I don't know how many men were in the city, but you know, everybody knew her. The, Mary, there are people that sin more than you. The Bible says that God can save the uttermost. God can save the last sinner. But my sins are big. Well, Jesus' blood is bigger. That's what the, my Bible says. And he to me, Pastor, do you think that there is hope for me? I would love to be saved. I said, absolutely. What should I do? Confess. To you? I said, no, I'm not a Catholic priest. I said, you confess to those that you sinned against and to God. And he said, there are too many and I am dying. I said, then you better start. He says, but I am weak. I cannot talk loud and I cannot talk more than a few minutes. I said, then that's the reason I am here. Like Aaron and Moses, I'm going to talk for you. You tell me and I'm going to call them. And he started to call, to tell me name by name. And I would call them name by name. <laughs> About four days every day I visited him and I kept calling people name by name. He wants you to forgive him. I cannot forgive him. Then I said, we need to pray for you. Bye. I called them. He said, did they forgive me? I said, none of your business. Your business is to confess. It's between them and God if they forgive you or not. When you confess, you are forgiven. He says, but I, I, after four days, he says, I don't remember anybody else. I said, God is not going to count to you what you don't remember. So I said, pray that God would forgive you for the things that you don't remember. You would like to confess, you just don't remember. He prayed. Then I said, now confess to God. I said, Lord, I am really sorry with all my heart. He did. Then I say, say now, Lord, I don't deserve salvation, but I know that Jesus' blood is sufficient and I believe that I am forgiven. And he kept quiet. I said, say it. But I don't know. How do I know? I said, you don't need to know. You don't need to feel. You need to believe the word. Do you believe in the Bible? Yes. The Bible says when you confess, you are forgiven. Say, Lord, I confess. Now I believe your word. I don't deserve it, but I believe your word. You don't lie. I believe I am forgiven. When he said it, he started to cry. He said, Lord, I believe I am forgiven. I said, Oh, what a feeling. So, pastor, am I forgiven? I said, yes, you are. Wow. He said, you are the best pastor. I love you. Come here. I said, you instantly love me now. And then he said, would you do my funeral? I almost said that would be my pleasure, but I didn't say that. I said, sure, I will do it. And then he said, pastor, am I saved? I said, yes. How do you know? I said, I'm not God, but I just take God's word. God's word says, he who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. You call Jesus. You call Jesus in your life, you are saved. Not because of you. Pastor, I don't deserve it. I said, that's the beauty. That's the reason when you go to heaven, you are going to put your crown at Jesus' feet and say, how am I here? I don't deserve it. That's the reason. If you deserve it, you're not going to be thankful. He said, come close. I got close. I was wondering, is he going to hit me? He put his arms around me. He kissed me. And he said, thank you. And he said, I'll be in heaven because of you. I said, no, you are wrong. You cannot be in heaven because of me. I cannot be in heaven because of me. Moreover, you. 
you'll be in heaven because of the blood of the Lamb. And that's the beauty of grace. When you confess, that's the beginning of salvation. We'll talk next time about the following steps. God bless you. Probably we should have a prayer as we close, shouldn't we? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, what a miracle. What a blessing. Undeserved grace. Undeserved love. Oh, if we could understand the cross. Angels cannot understand. We in eternity are going to study it and praise you and we will never fully understand the magnitude, the infinity of your love. If we could open our eyes for a second and see a drop of your love, we will never doubt you again. We will never be sad. We will always jump and scream and rejoice and sing. And we will always trust you. Help us understand. Help us know you. Help us trust in you. And help, us, help us understand that we need to own, to, re, to recognize, to acknowledge, to confess who we are. And only by confessing we have the promise of forgiveness and cleanseness and salvation. We have hope. Help us to learn this lesson and apply it. We pray in Jesus' name and merits. Amen.